I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Greetings, music nerds, and welcome to season seven of the Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in East Nashville, Tennessee. I'm so glad you've chosen to join me once again as we take some deep dives with a cast of wonderful musicians, producers, and engineers that I've managed to track down and speak to about making music, records, and just doing what they do in their lives and music. Don't forget there's a link to a playlist on Spotify and Apple Music with links to many of the songs we discuss on today's episode. You'll find links to those playlists in the show notes below or at our website. Meanwhile, the show continues to be largely listener-supported. Your help in keeping the show going is always appreciated, and you can do it with a one-time donation or a Patreon subscription, which is a monthly payment of your choice. And when you sign up for Patreon, you get an ad-free version of the show to listen to, as well as getting entered to win a cunning prize pack from our sponsors at the end of the season. Or if you're tight for dough and you still want to help out, you can subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or just by spreading the word, sharing the show, following us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook, and telling all your pals about it. You can get links to all this stuff at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Meanwhile, a huge thanks to the sponsors this season. Please check them out and let them know I sent you. They are Union Tube and Transistor, Spectra 1964, The Deering Banjo Company, Mule Resophonic Guitars, and The Henhouse Hang. All right, thanks so much to you for tuning in, and let's get down to it. Hey there, everybody, and welcome to the show. This is episode number 143. And the first episode of season seven, which is very exciting. My guest today is the extremely unique and creative songwriter, singer, guitarist, and recording artist, Aaron Lee Tastian. I'm really excited to get cracking here this week with all new season seven. And thank you all for tuning in and coming along for the ride. It's been a crazy start to the summer here in Nashville. I've been mostly working on recording sessions, producing and mixing records, doing a lot of that these days, mostly staying home. Although I had a fantastic trip recently up to Prince Edward Island in Eastern Canada and worked with a couple of really great artists there and met some amazing fellow producers and musicians along the way. So that's been cool. I'm not doing a ton of gigs this summer for whatever reason, but if you're going to be at the Vancouver Folk Festival, I will see you there. I'll be performing with my band, which are now affectionately called the Hooded Mergansers. As well, I will be backing up Joaquin Cooter, and I will also be backing up Joe Henry at their respective sets, as well as leading a multi-artist project playing some songs by the Grateful Dead. So that'll be a crazy weekend, and I'm really looking forward to that. So hope to see some of you there at my old stomping grounds in Vancouver. And before we get going here, I would just like to shout out to a new donor this week who was generous enough to help support the show. So many thanks to John Barnum. Thank you. All right. On the show this week, we have the very remarkable singer and songwriter Aaron Lee Tastian. 
Aaron is also an East Nashvilleian, just like me, but up to this point, we had not crossed paths, but he was generous enough to stop by the studio here, and we had a great time talking through his creative process in writing songs and making records. So Aaron has about five records out. It's a little fuzzy because there's a bunch of EPs, not to mention albums that he's on by bands that he was a part of before becoming a solo artist. But his latest few are real gems. Those are the ones that I know the best, both in the writing and the incredible production and delivery. So Tastian, 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 all with exclamations, is the latest one. That's from a couple years ago now. That's one of my faves, along with one called Silver Tears and one called Karma for Cheap. All great records. Make sure you check those out. Aaron had a really interesting path to where he's at now. Starting out, he was playing in bands and in jazz band at high school and kind of toying with a career as a jazz guitarist pretty early on. But then he kind of realized that his real passion was for songwriting, so he left the jazz guitar thing behind. And then there's a number of stints in bands that he was in after he moved to New York, and that's like 15 years ago or something. And one of those was the Semi-Precious Weapons and the greatly named Madison Square Gardeners. So uh, he had those bands for a while, and he even had a stint in the New York Dolls as the guitar player, which is super cool. And he also was a side person for Mark Cohen, who had that huge hit Walking in Memphis, which I'm sure some of you remember. So that's all super cool. He relocated to Nashville after that, and that's where his solo career started in earnest. And he's made a string of killer solo records, and he's managed to stay true to his unique sound, but he's also evolved in really interesting ways with each new project. He's in the middle of completing his next album right now, and we talk about that quite a bit. He's collaborated with folks like Sean Lennon, Jack White, Tim Easton, Lily Hyatt, and he's just been a really busy musician and writer and artist around town here. So you can keep track of all of his work, plus his upcoming tour dates at AaronLeeTastian.com. So let's get down to it. Please enjoy my conversation with Aaron Lee Tastian. I remember one time I when I was living in Brooklyn, one of my friends referred to me as the king of the $50 guitar. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's something to be him. proud of. I'll man. take that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot of my heroes were into that kind of stuff, like David Lindley and stuff yeah. like that. Like they made their living playing weird, whack ass Japanese stuff and right. like weird imported and Sears guitars and things like that, you know? Buddy There's a lot Mil of gems in there, man. Yeah. Buddy Miller's like one of my yeah. all time guitar heroes, and he. He plays these like weird plastic. Yeah, those Italian ones, right? Yeah, he told me one time he found a few of them in a mm -hmm. pawn shop, but there was one specific one that I think the brand is Wandre or something, right? Yeah, that's something right. Like that. And he said there was one specific model of it that he really wanted, and the guy had one, but it was like way up high, yeah. you know. And he said to the guy, you know, man, I'm really sorry to like. Is there any way I could look at that way up there? And, he, and the guy said, man, if you can get it down, you can have it. <laughs> oh, so worth it. All right. Yeah. I know. Oh my God. I think he's got a few of those, right? He does. Yeah. 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 That's kind of part of his sound, really, are yeah. those I saw him on that guitars. Wrecking Ball tour, you oh. know, like back in whatever it was, probably 99 or 2000, and he was playing one of the, That's the first time I'd ever seen a guitar like that. Yeah. And it was like... They're interesting looking. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny, like, he handed me one one time, like, we were doing... I think I was... We were doing a YouTube video. I was doing a little tour of his 
studio with him. Oh yeah. And he handed me one of them and I, I like got it and like, and like was kind of looking at it and it was like, there were like pieces of tape, like <laughs> just like holding the pickups in place. And stuff like yeah. Yeah. I was like, man, this guy, you know, clearly not the, it's what's the, what's the saying? It's not the wand. It's the wizard. Totally. Totally. <laughs> Have you ever worked with him? Like in a, in some sort of capacity of record making? He's never produced a record for you. I don't. Not in a record making capacity, but we've we've worked together on uh, the radio show that he does on Sirius oh, okay. XM. Yeah, um, a few times. Like um, you've been a host, a guest host of it, or yeah, what? Okay. yeah. I, I there was a we did a segment where I would sort of be like the like here's your man on the street in East Nashville telling you about okay. you know some some new records that are. I've already come out that I'm digging and some new records that have yet to come out that I'm excited about. Yeah. One time we did a show that was all singer-songwriters iPhone demos. So we just got, you know, got a hold of like my neighbor and... across the street is Kim Ritchie. So I oh, was yeah. like, you know, hey, do you have a cool demo of a new song? Bet she we does. played on the show. She sure did. <laughs> oh, yeah. She had one of the best ones, of course. Yeah. yeah. Maybe we could start by talking a little bit about your the evolution that you've had in your career you know, you've made a few records. You haven't made a ton of records. And you kind of like, you have a whole other phase of your career that's earlier where you're sort of more of a guitar player. And that's pretty interesting to me as well. But as far as, like, I know you're working on a new record now from what I've read or understood. So I wonder for you, like, how that process works. You know, like, I'm sure that for you, there's like an, an artistic evolution that happens each time. Feels to me like you don't want to repeat yourself. You're kind of constantly evolving and changing a little bit. Is that something that you really strive for in the record making process? And, yeah. And what's happening this time? Yeah, I feel like for me, like, I guess, you, you know, you always have to have sort of defined goals if you're going to think about whether or not you're a success. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, for me, doing something that felt like it was breaking some sort of new ground for me personally, mm -hmm. that I felt really invested in what is sort of the that's kind of where it's all starts, you know, and ends really as far as like making a, a, a new record that I'm satisfied with. Mm -hmm. um, and the process has changed some over the years as I've become a, a more mature person. <laughs> wow. like, Does that really happen? But yeah, my, I know. Yeah, not really. What am I? What am I calling maturity? I do my laundry now, I guess. Um, I um, like my first record that I ever made. I I was I had just moved to Nashville, but the it, what ended up making the most sense for the kind of record I was trying to make was for me to actually do it in California. Um, with some okay. friends out there. Yeah. So I flew to California and rented a car because you kind of need a car in California. Yes, it's you not do. like walkable, really. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the choice would have been either like get a hotel or rent a car. And I, I chose car. Yeah. Um, I thought it was better to be mobile than. Um, comfortable. It's a good choice. Um, so, you can sleep in a car too. Yeah, if you have to. I, I did. I did that uh, one night, and then most nights I just slept on the floor of the studio. So where were you working? It was a studio called uh, that's still around. That's really great. Um, called New Monkey. Okay. Um, Why there? What was there? Was there a connection with a the person there or something? Yeah, a couple connections there actually. Um, 
you know, in, inspiration wise, the the main connection would have been that it was the room that Elliot Smith constructed to make Basement on oh, a Hill. And that's where I know that name from. Yeah, okay. it's it's you know, it's a legendary spot to me in that for for that reason. Um, so is that the place that he built with like Larry Crane? Is that yeah? Okay, yeah, and that's in L.A. Yeah, uh, it's in Ven- it's in the valley basically. Yeah, and and they have that legendary Trident console in mm-hmm. there, and um, yeah, so it's a it's a it's a cool spot in that way. But then also, I had been playing in a band called Everest, yep. and our uh, co guitar player in that band, Joel Graves, was one of the owners of the studio, and we had rehearsed a lot of Everest's music in the studio. So I was already very familiar with the space um, in addition to being, you know, sort of inspired by the idea of um, working in a place um, that that Elliot kind of was born out of his mind. It just felt, yeah, kind of comfortable in that way. And I think that's really, I just, yeah, I want to, I want to do the, the, you know, emotional musical equivalent of like taking my shoes off when I'm making a record, yeah. you know, yeah. I don't want to feel feels that way. Yeah. It feels to me like each record has a pretty distinct sonic footprint. Yeah. But there's like a clear path that, that I can see like from one to the next, which is probably you can't not have that because it's you do, doing it ultimately. <laughs> sure. But there is like sonic departures and there's like right. clearly different approaches to recording that maybe you've just got more experimental as you go or maybe you're really sort of gearing towards one path. You know, I, I don't know how yeah. consciously you go into that process. That's just it's, the way it strikes me. It's pretty intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it starts with um, what serves the music to me. You know, so it's like it's, after you've written the songs, exactly. you kind of look at it as a whole and think like, it's hey, about, this would be. Yeah. Okay. It's about having, it's about, ha- it, well, it's about, it's about over preparing and being flexible for me. Okay. So it's about having more songs than I need um, just in case for whatever reason, I just can't get the right version of one or something like that, which has been a thing before. Um, where I've had a song that I felt strongly about and just that moment, for whatever reason, we just didn't get the right version of it, I felt, you know, and and, and so kept it back for that reason. Um, but yeah, it's, it's about kind of um, having too many songs, um, but you know, having this, the, having the definite like sort of tentpole songs where you know, like, you know, it, this is definitely like one of the cornerstones of the foundation that I'm building, you know. Um, and then and then going into it and, um, you know, with the intention of I want to make, you know, the best record that's going to serve this music, these songs. And, you know, what I've what I've found is that um, having uh a level of or maintaining a level of curiosity about what that is as I'm going along um, is is more helpful to me in terms of feeling like I am am getting somewhere with it than uh, sort of being like, I'm going to make this kind of record come you know, hell or high water, it's going to be this. Um, And I'm just not going to stop until it's that. Um, Because I think my experience has been sometimes the ways in which I've sort of accidentally surprised myself have ended up 
being real bright moments on some of the records um, right. of just things that I didn't expect. Accidents. Um, yeah. Always, yeah. And so, so I maintaining totally that, yeah, to that openness to that, mm-hmm. I feel like hel- helps me to craft something that I, um, again, just feel is not, uh, you know, unrecognizable as me, right. but is, is, is entering some sort of space that I feel like I haven't done before. Is that something that you are concerned about as an artist, like keeping people on board with the path that you're taking, like sonically or like, because it's like, you know, you're one of those people that have, you have changed gears, yeah. like maybe not super radically, but fairly mm. radically, I'd yeah. say, like particularly the last record was like kind of a departure, although yeah. I don't know if it, seem, if it feels like that to you. Sonically, it feels like that to me a bit, but it doesn't feel like completely crazy. Um, I would say that's but are accurate. You, yeah. Are, yeah. Is, is it something that you're aware of keeping tabs on? It's like you don't want to get too out there for the for the, <laughs> for the people that yeah. follow you? Or well, you are know, you just like doing it to... I guess I sort of believe in that idea of the the audience has to come to the artist and not mm-hmm. the other way around. Um, so I guess I've I, what I've tried to do is to cultivate... Um, you know, a, a, even if it's even if it means it's like a smaller group, a group of people who are interested more in what I'm going to do next than yeah. what I've already done. Um, I, you know, there's a lot of, you know, mythologizing and things like that that happen in music um, for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes it's because the piece was literally a cultural touchstone, you know, but then also I feel like, you know, we're just particularly us down here in America. Like we're just so fascinated with awful things. Sometimes (laughs) I feel like (laughs) things get mythologized, maybe just, I don't know, for shock value or, or, or I don't even know why, Um, you know, so I've, I've tried to, to steer myself away from, you know, trying to have, you know, the appearance of of being, you know, any sort of like legacy type artist or anything like that and just be sort of more of the kind of uh, person that's like worth checking in with every now and again because you kind of just never know like what's going to happen. You can, um, you can worry about being a legacy artist 20 years from now. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, I think, I don't, to me, like, the best art always just feels very, like, in the moment. And I guess, like, when I say that, I think about just things like um, the story that I've always heard of, like, uh, the recording of like Dock of the Bay by Otis mm-hmm. Redding is that, you know, they had already done a session that day and it was basically the end of the day. And he was like, oh, yeah, I've got this one. Toss it off. You know, <laughs> and like that's kind of the take. Yeah. And man, and just throw like, a whistle solo it, in there because nobody's around. To, to me, it just doesn't get any more timeless than that. Yeah. You know, and yeah. and I and I feel the energy of just the moment that they were in every time I hear that recording, even though it was made, you know, so long ago. To me, it just always the energy that's on that tape just retains that mm-hmm. sort of vibrance, you yeah. know, even as time goes on. So that's uh, that's really the goal is to just be super in the moment if right. possible, yeah. So with your new record that you're working on, obviously I haven't heard it. I don't know how far along you are. I don't even know if you're comfortable talking about it. Sure, but, yeah. But are there, are there um, some new things that you're 
trying out, either like recording-wise or space-wise or people-wise? Definitely. Yeah. All, actually, all of those things. Okay. Um, you know, so tell me a bit about the about the like where you're doing it and and what sort of stuff you're going for. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, the record took a few. This record took a few twists and turns. Um, partially, I think, because of how it was done. This was not a record that I worked on um, sort of like consistently for a period of time. It was more of a record that happened in bursts oh, cool. okay. um, of time, yep. um, which ended up feeling um, really sort of refreshing to me in a way. Um, like out of necessity or? Yeah, okay. just out, yep. of, out of like scheduling, yep. basically. You know, it's like... You know, all us working class musicians, you know, we, um, you know, aren't really in the position anymore in the modern music industry to, you know, just be like, I'm going to tour for six months and then I'm going to take three months off, you yeah. know, or whatever. You know, we just kind of always have to keep working. And, and so, you know, I just kind of scheduled my own record in between other projects, various other projects and touring you know, of my own that I was doing at the time. And yeah, so it it started off with four of us. It was my person who I've collaborated with on my last three records. He's kind of the one mainstay. His name is um, Gregory Latimer. Most folks know him as the producer of the very first Albert Hammond Jr. Um, solo album, Yours to Keep, which is my favorite one, actually. It's just, yeah. it's a, such a lovely, weird, <laughs> weird and lovely record. I don't know how else to describe yeah, it other it, than it's, it's a great just one. really lovely and weird. And then uh, Tommy Cypress. Uh, I know Tommy a little bit. We played in a band together. Oh, how cool. Yeah. yeah he's a gem, mm -hmm. you know, and. He's played with you for quite a while now. Yeah, right? he played, he played with me for a long time. These days he plays with uh, country superstar Lainey Wilson. Oh, okay. And has been doing that for the last year or so. Mm -hmm. um, playing bass for yeah, her? Yeah, playing okay. bass for her. And yeah, and on that TV show, Yellowstone and all oh, that yeah. stuff cool. too. Um, so it's been really cool to um, watch Tommy's career grow in that way. Um, he's so talented. And he plays bass for you? He, yes, okay. he was playing bass with me. Although, you know, there were there were gigs that we would do sometimes where he would he would play guitar and and keys as well. And like everybody else from North Carolina, he can also sing. Yeah, I don't know yeah, what totally. it is. I don't know what's going on over there, but it's, I guess everyone from North Carolina just the band I was in with know. him. He was playing guitar and singing backup, and he was really good at all that it, stuff. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just yeah, he has a knack for it. Um, so yeah, so we had Tommy. Um, uh, Robbie Crowell, um, yep, fellow Canadian, yeah, just right. phenomenal musician, yeah. you know, multi instrumentalist. Yeah. Um, I met him uh, initially when he was playing in Deer Tick. Uh, these days, he plays drums, of course, for the band Midland. Yeah. Um, in addition to uh, many other uh, projects, producing projects and otherwise that he's involved in. Um, and, uh, and then the, the, um, the last member of our, of our, uh, initial team, uh, Owen Beverly, um, who's really just another one, um, who multi-instrumentalist, great songwriter, great singer, really great producer, um, has a, he, he might not say this, but he has, um, 
a really well I shouldn't say that maybe he would um, he has a really <laughs> he has a really great knack for like uh, audio engineering as well um, and and so we just I just sort of picked people where like are these guys you play live with ever or not really Robbie I've played with and obviously Tommy um, I'm trying to think if Owen and I have ever played together live i don't know that we have okay so it's it's like a, a newish yeah, exactly thing. okay yeah and i you know i just yeah i just wanted to i just really respected all of these yep. musicians and they all do things on their own um that i thought my music would benefit from um so it was yeah it was an easy call to ask them to come in and help and so we did a few i think we did like two or three sessions like that where um over at gregory's studio which is on Artie um avenue um just uh here in 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 inglewood and yeah it's like it's cool because he has one of those places that has like a backyard with like a garage basically that someone had converted into a studio space already and um and his backyard is like really um, lush and there's a lot of greenery and like mm-hmm. animals or it's kind of like recording at Snow White's cottage or something. <laughs> like you walk out into the backyard and there's like just squirrels and uh-huh. deer and stuff. And, um, and it's really beautiful and nice. Um, we'll listen to playback a lot of times by like just sort of walking out the back door and leaving the door open, right. <laughs> you know? Um, but, um, so yeah, I would say, uh, the bulk of the whole record has been recorded there, but those first couple of sessions and trying to describe the music, I think, uh, at one point Robbie said to me, I, I never thought I would play on a song with the combined influences of, (laughs) Uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and Three Six Mafia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. If that wets your whistle, um, mm-hmm. it sure does. <laughs> yeah. Boy, do I have a record for you. Um, no, but you know. So, so there was. Um, yeah, there were those initial sessions. Then, did I, you guys work pretty much live as a unit, or pretty much? Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, you know, oh, a few overdub things. That were mostly like just sound things that we wanted, you know, um, and um, you know the goal was just yeah to get get good performances of the tunes, all brand new songs. Mm-hmm. And um, I think we did, I think we did do like ten songs like that. Okay, um, and then in the me and then I, and then I kind of got busy for a little bit, you know, and. But I've also been kind of trying to co-write a little bit more. Um, I've never really done that, you know, traditionally. So I don't know where I saw it. Maybe I maybe it was mentioned in something about your stuff you're working on now. But it seemed to me like you had done that in the past. Is it, but that is that? Did I get that wrong? I mean, it, it, I would say like in the in the last like in the last two years, really. Oh, okay. You know, yeah. I've kind of done that more. And the what are you getting out of that? Firstly, the con- the consistency of um, of of creativity um, in that I'm uh, I'm forcing myself to think about songwriting from a perspective uh, that's different than the circumstances I would normally consider it mm-hmm. under. Um, 
you know, and I guess what I mean by that is just like, you know, a lot of times when you're co-writing for someone, there's a specific goal in mind. They're coming in because they're writing for their album, yep. you know, and they're looking to you to enhance that. So, you know, for me, it's it's about, you know, studying what they've done and seeing if I can get in, get myself into a into a place where I feel like I'm in sync with, you yeah. know, where they've been and, and tricky, where they're right? going. It, it can be, you know, because songwriting is, is one of those, um, one of those things where I feel like the really great people who are doing it, like you can, that they're, their unique voice like emerges through the process of, of, of creating a song. Um, and, you know, sometimes that voice can be like, you know, very like defining and like idiosyncratic, you know, it's just got its own yeah. thing and you know it as soon as you hear, you know, um, certain kinds of, of songwriters songs. Um, so, you know, I've I've always tried to to develop that voice in my own writing, and so if I'm if I'm consciously writing a pro uh, for someone else's project, I I want to try really hard not to like fall back on anything yeah. that I would just do for myself just because right you know. So you're talking about people calling you up saying, "Hey man, I'd like to co-write with you for my project." Yeah. Um, and then you started doing that as well for your project. You, were you in a position where you wanted to bring in some co-writers? It was sort of more like, you know, we would just kind of keep like, you know, I mentioned Kim Ritchie earlier. This was one she had, you know, she and I had talked about writing together and, and she was getting some songs together for a record. And we wrote a couple for her and then, um, you know, in that process ended up just for fun, kind of writing one that I felt really strongly about okay. and, and ended up wanting to put on my record. Yeah. Um, so I guess that that part, uh, the co-writing part of this was a little less intentional in that way. But I really it was something that I just really wanted to, like, open myself up to as a means to sort of, yeah, uh, create some new channels musically and yeah, get some other ideas going. <laughs> cool. That's good. <laughs> so, um, and I felt like, yeah, it was, it was really, um, fun to do that this time and, um, and to have more songs on the record that I've, that I've co-written with other people than I think I ever have. And some, and sometimes, you know, I mean, co-writing is always a, a tricky process. It's like, um, sometimes th they, I was bringing in, very nearly finished songs and and just and, tweaking them or adding yeah. a line here Can and there. Can you beat me out of? Yeah, yeah like yeah. you know, I know this could be better. I mm -hmm. just don't know how. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know, could do you have any ideas? You know, and so that that process uh, proved to be fruitful as well. I found it takes a lot more guts to show up somewhere without that. Like yeah, with like a blank slate and just be Man. like, but I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah, what do you got? I yeah. know. Yeah, I've been in those co-writing situations too and it it uh, it i think in the right circumstances it's it can be good because it, it sort of raises the bar of like all mm -hmm. right we really got to dig in here um but certainly if you're not expecting it <laughs> yeah. it could also be yeah. kind of like oh no <laughs> um <laughs> i had a few 
collaborators in that way. And then as uh, as I was sort of, as I had that time in between those initial sessions, I found myself just writing on my own again as well and getting ideas from every which way. Like my sister, um, who's a, a fashion writer for the Washington Post, um, she called me up one day and said, I have no idea why. I just feel like you should write a song about Gianni Versace, you know? And Uh I was like, hadn't thought of that at all, but (laughs) why not? Why not indeed? (laughs) Absolutely. And so I wrote this song that's sort of very indirectly about him. But I had in my, in my readings about him, I, I, I've, I've felt that he, he and, and his partner seemed to particularly treasure this house that they had in Miami. They felt, you know, particularly at home there and, and, and particularly in love there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just thought like, yeah, that's, that's a kind of a beautiful thing to hang a song on. So I just, cool. I just kind of made it about. Was it written like from his perspective or just sort of about him? I mean, yeah, I guess it's, it's a first person perspective. So I suppose in that way, like there is some sort of attempt being made yeah, to, yeah. you know, know um to go there but it's not it's you know the the only i guess the only thing that really ties ties the song directly to him is that it is based in miami and i talk about the street that their house was okay i like it but yeah it was just sort of i guess more of an inspiration Mm -hmm. than anything but definitely like a way to to get somewhere new um you know when you think about a place like miami to me, at least, music is one of the very first things that comes sure. to mind. For sure, you know, I mean, the you Cuban know, connection, absolutely, yeah. and and the 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 big you know um, music and artists that have come out of there, you know, certainly you know Gloria Estefan and yeah. and uh, and and folks like that, um, and they it all has that that sound to it that you can tell like it's got that Miami thing you know I wanted to experiment with that a little bit and and we also had some hiccup during the I'm thinking about this now the guy who played drums on that song was supposed to come back a couple of weeks later to play drums on a couple more songs and he got to the airport in Nashville he was coming in from LA got to the airport in Nashville and his wife called him and was like our kid has COVID. Now I have COVID and I'm feeling so bad. Like I can't even like get out of bed to go to the grocery store to oh, like shit. get a soup or whatever. And I'm so sorry, but like get home. I kind of need you to come home, <laughs> yeah. you know? And, and I was like, yeah, man, like, please like, yeah. you know, it's, that stuff is so important. Like, yeah. please go home. You know? So there were some, some pivots and stuff that we had to do just because of the For way sure. the world is now, yep. you know, this process has sort of helped me uh on this particular record has sort of helped me almost like see time in a new way or something i think I, we all are too I, right like, i think that's so a pretty I, legit feels thing these days kind of universal yeah, yeah at this point um and uh, you know traditionally i wasn't a super patient person i think mm-hmm. and now i kind of yeah i really see the value in Sometimes, yeah, waiting or, you know. You've uh, matured, as you said. (laughs) I started this whole thing off by saying I'm more mature and now I'm proving it, baby. Uh, But yeah, no, it's. So how long was the process from the first sessions to where you, like, are you finished now? Is it done? 
We're starting to mix uh, okay. May 29th. So the whole thing of recording, how long did that take for this record? That was a year oh, wow. and three months, I would okay. say. So, but spread out. Yes. Obviously, you weren't yeah. working on no. it. Like... <laughs> it wasn't a Joe Walsh record right. from, the, <laughs> from the 80s. I was going to say you too from the 80s, and then you said Joe <laughs> yeah, Walsh. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's an interesting way to work, too, is like giving your head a little space in between sessions and let it, letting things sink in. And yeah, that can change how you approach things. It was great for songwriting as well, because at a certain point, it started to become about, are there holes song-wise that need to be filled, you know? Would you ever, in that time, if you're dealing with spaces in between sessions, do you go in and think about how you could improve a song and suddenly you want to, like, swap out a line and things like, did that happen a lot? I even... I even will like sort of conduct my own sessions just like at home trying out, you know, I, you know, I'll have our rough a stereo, you know, wave of our rough mix up and, and just be looking for the right guitar part or the right sound sometimes, you know, synth sound or, or, or whatever it is, Um, you know, and I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll spend, you know, a day just at home you know, to find the right thing for one thing. Yeah. Just because in this day and age, it's just like in the way that we can all record at home now, like it's just so much more cost effective. (laughs) I'm not wasting a day, you know, at my friend's studio on that. When I'm there, I, I know I have a list of things that I'm just doing. The sort of spaced out working, um, schedule this time really, really benefited in, me in terms of, you know, there wasn't, it, it, it wasn't, uh, just two weeks or mm-hmm. something, you know, where, you know, it's like, okay, I have got to get this knocked out and this is it, yeah. you know? And yeah. if I don't like, ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm pretty much used we'll to working in the way. mix, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah totally. it's like, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a very real thing it is, yeah. um, with the way that budgets are these yeah. days for, for making records. So, um, yeah, it was it was nice to 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 have that that space where it, gosh, I was just thinking to myself, I wonder if you actually added up the number of days that we did work over the last year and a half or year and 3 months or whatever, like how long that would actually cuz I don't it certainly wouldn't be a year. <laughs> right, right. I mean, that's for sure. Um, but if you tally up all the times you're sitting there dinking around with guitar sounds, like maybe <laughs> oh, it is a year, maybe. right? Maybe. <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah. Actual studio time, maybe not. But yeah. maybe with that, yeah. Yeah. So the record before, Tastion, 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 mm-hmm. um, that had some hallmarks, like sonic hallmarks, like yeah. some real cool fuzzy guitars and crazy synths and stuff. and. Some really cool lap steel stuff too, which I wanted to ask you about. I don't know who does that. Yeah. Is that you or is that? That's my friend Joshua Kaler. Okay, he's really good. He's super good. Um, so, are there sonic hallmarks to what you're working on now that are either similar or different? But like that record had a real vibe with those yeah. some of those things that were like heavily featured more. I think I think there. You know, I think this next record is to me. It almost felt like on the last one, I kind of started down that path. And this one is almost kind of like either finishing or ex- possibly expanding on okay. that thought. Yeah. Yep. You know, interesting. Um, where, you know, there's, um, you know, there's some, there's definitely, 
some things that I've just never done on my music at all. There's some drum programming and things like that on this. It's very organic sounding. Do you get um, your mitts into that stuff, or do you rely on people to bring that to the party? I... Well, yeah. I mean, that was... Sometimes I do. In this case, it it was dependent on the song. Um, but, you know, that was one of the... Th- like, Robbie Krause, really great with that stuff, you know. So I had, I had brought him in to do some of that. Um, my other friend, Aaron Steele... Um, who uh, has worked on the last couple of Portugal The Man records, um, really great drummer and, and really great just composer and, and, and arranger, um, but he's really good with that stuff too. So we had him in on some later sessions doing some of that. And then there was one song that Gregory uh, did the, the programming on, and it, it, to me it was so... It made such a significant impact on the song that I actually gave him songwriting credit. Oh, cool! On the song for yeah. it, because to it me, just has radically a, changed the way that you approach. Exactly. The, yeah. If you're, if whatever you did that is a part of the creative process with me alters the way that I'm going to sing the song like totally. every single night of my life, yeah. then to me, that's songwriting. I think sometimes songwriting can be confusing as far as it like can be what really it confusing. is. Yeah. <laughs> because um, just, yeah. Just ask the band. Right. <laughs> exactly, right? Yeah, I know. Um, and all that. And obviously there's like the way that the music business economy is at this point. It's like I want... Uh, I want people to be able to survive, <laughs> you know, and um, if somebody contributes in that way and 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 you can give them that credit um, and then something good happens with the song or whatever, like that's that's more for them down the line, obviously, yeah. and stuff. So it's yeah. a it's a and it's a sign of respect, too, that people I, yeah. appreciate, I think, you know, and Definitely. it's like it helps with the general vibe of a yeah. project too. <laughs> Absolutely. Like when goodwill, people, you know. I think when people feel like they're contributing to something that they're genuinely interested in and that their contribution is valued and appreciated in a way that that's like palpable. Yeah. Um, that's a palpable way. You know, yeah, it 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 definitely it can definitely rearrange some molecules in the room as far <laughs> as like just keeping it like yeah, yeah, we're all on this train together. At this point in the show, I'd like to thank our amazing sponsors for the season. We couldn't do it without their support and this year they are Mule Resophonics. Swing wider for inspiration with Mule Resophonic guitars. These are Resophonic guitars built for acoustic guitar players. Not just blues guitars, not just slide guitars. You don't need to play them in open tunings. They're set up with normal acoustic guitar action, and they have some of the best feeling necks in the game. Trust me, they're wicked. These musical tools wake up your ear and influence your playing towards uncharted musical realms. Check out the current lineup of guitars at the Mule Store at muleresophonic.com. Thanks to Deering. Deering banjos make some of the finest instruments out there these days and caters to all levels as well. If you're just getting into the banjo, they offer their incredible Good Time series, which are high-quality instruments at lower prices. Deering banjos are all made in the USA, and their website also features some incredible info on their products and just general banjo information. And now Deering is also making pro pick finger picks and thumb picks, and that's exciting because I've been using those finger picks for years. They make these cool ones with the fingertips missing, and I love those. They're the best. You can get info on the banjos and the finger picks over at DeeringBanjos.com. 
thanks to Spectra 1964. For over 50 years, Spectra 1964 has established a reputation of creating some of the most innovative recording equipment on the market today. Their consoles and preamps were behind the sound of so many great American studios of the 1960s through to today. Spectra 1964 continues the legacy of providing incredible recording products for the home or professional studio. Check them out at spectra1964.com. Union Tube and Transistor. Union is known for guitar effects pedals with a focus on quality and simplicity. They build durable, repairable products that sound amazing both on stage and in the studio. Their fuzz effects and compression pedals are insanely cool. I use the Sonebender Fuzz, the Moore pedal, the Lab, and the Swindle Overdrive all the time in sessions and live on stage. You can find out more about them at uniontone.com. And finally, the Henhouse Hang is a three-day immersive recording experience at the Henhouse Studio in East Nashville with me, Steve Dawson. It'll be in September 2023 and then upcoming again in September of 2024. Join us for a musical learning experience like no other. We'll show you the ropes of recording roots in Americana music by bringing you in on a real session with real musicians working on real songs from the ground up. You can get all the info at stevedawson.ca. Just follow the links on the front page to the Hen House Hang. All right, then. Let's get back to the show. All right, cool. So that's like that's like this new project that I haven't heard. I have no idea what it's like, but I can imagine it's going to be super cool. So it's kind of it's going to come out sometime probably in 2024. Yeah, early next year. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about the last record which came out, I don't know when, 20, 2021. 21. Okay. Yeah. So did, was it a pandemic recording or pre-pandemic or when did he make it? It was pre-pandemic. It got made um Mostly during 2019. Okay. Um, And then uh, just a few things kind of buttoned up right at the top of of 2020 um, before everything went went haywire. You were totally done, mixed, mastered everything by 2020? We were not. We we took a beat on on the mixing because there was – we couldn't decide – Gregory had made some really um, amazing sounding like reference mixes um, just to sort of like show someone like our intention. And several people were like, I wouldn't, I don't know, man. Really? <laughs> yeah. Like this sounds really good. You got like, I don't like, know if you need a mixer. You yeah, know? yeah. And so there was. Does he not consider himself a mixing person or I was do. it just always the intention that it was going to get done by somebody else? I think that was a, maybe a label thing where the label. That's uh, still this, a thing where labels are like, you got to get some big like, name to it wasn't, do it. At that time, they were. Um, I was, in their eyes, I was sort of, you know, an unproven entity as a producer, you know? So I think that was the, that was the sort of like safety net that could exist. Is that record self-produced? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Man, I wish, uh, I wish you could get credits easier. Yeah. <laughs> it sucks, man. It's really hard. <laughs> yeah. It's really hard. Yeah. Um, I'm glad, I was glad to see at least some amount of crediting eventually show up on Spotify because I do think it's, you know, for those of us who are, you know, creative people and also users of of those kind of platforms, obviously this isn't going to be everybody, but like we have that, we're coming to it from from that place of like, yeah, totally. who, who did this? To you me know? it's just such an oversight in the industry that like, 
okay, so now we all give our music away for free. The least we could have done is like ingrain this thing where you can just pop like up, a, hit a button and it tells you who's playing pedal steel on a song. <laughs> yes. That's what I want to know. Seriously. And it's um, really, you got to dig for that shit. I know. I, I, I've been, I've been actually, it's interesting, like, cause I've been thinking, um, I was like, I wonder if that's like marketable in some way, as far as like oh, telling sure the story is. of the record, you know, yeah. like maybe there's a way, you know, that's one of the things that I've been thinking about as we prepare to release this next album is like, maybe there's a way to do something that's kind of like interactive in some way with that you know, with the credits of the record, you yeah. know? So I've been mulling that around in my, in my mind, but yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. What was the question? I'm sorry. We were just talking about credits and you were talking about mixing and, yes. and yes. so, um, so yeah. Um, so we, yeah, so we did, we did take a second and then, and then we, and then we ended up settling on um, a mix engineer who we both completely revere and and had wanted to work with uh for a long time who was that uh john congleton i know that name from somewhere and i can't think of where i know him from i mean he's he's done many many projects that i'm a fan of he's he's he does his uh own music as well which is really really interesting um but I guess the the reason that he came to mind for me was I was hearing this really great song on the radio a lot at that time called Dylan Thomas. And it was a side project by um, Phoebe Bridgers and Connor Oberst oh, called okay, the yeah. Better Oblivion mm-hmm. Community Center. Yep. And it had this really cool, it was a folk song, you know, folk rock song, acoustic yep. and electric guitars and drums and bass. Um, and vocals and it, but, but man, when the chorus kicked in, it had this amazing, like sub low end thing happening that I had just never heard in the context of that that kind of music. And I just thought, wow, this is such a great innovation in that world to me. Uh Um, and, and it's so funny how like it it's such a you know it's such a, it can be such a small thing like that that catches your ear that's all it takes though right it, it really is yeah. i mean that's that's part of the magic of like just letting something really simple happen um and then and then you know developing that idea organically you know can feel really powerful like you don't have to necessarily reinvent the wheel to do right. something that feels that has a freshness to it and so that characteristic um just popped out right away and and um luckily for me uh you know I was on New West at the time and um Joel Habershaw the radio guy there uh, knew John's work very well and and was super supportive of of me uh, working with him and stuff and and so we basically sent like completely raw files okay you know to John because we just really wanted to let John be John do his you thing know? yeah um, and and he did we ha- we had created uh, to me a, a much more um, sort of uh, 70s sounding kind of sonic palette, mm-hmm. uh, very just everything super warm and yeah. and and all that stuff. And and John heard the record in a in a way that you know when all was said and done, 
to me ended up feeling a little bit more modern just in terms totally, of, yeah. of of you know uh how he had things eq'd and and yeah. um you know certain elements of um how he was using effects and and uh and all that kind of thing um, was it radically different from what you'd rough mixed previous to him getting the files some of it was uh-huh. like up all night the label was somewhat kind of somewhat swiss on that song like they were not like fully you know they were a little <laughs> neutral a on it, you know you meant by that, they, yeah they were just kind of like okay. like there was some neutrality yeah. i think um about that song where they were like you know we we don't hate it we don't love it you know we kind of don't know okay. um and they had sort of tasked me with, you know, could you, could you, I had asked their, the president of the label, is there something I can give you on a record that I haven't given you before? Um, That's generous of you. For this album. It was my last one for them. And I, and I, and I really wanted to. You had a X number of. Yeah. Okay. I really wanted to just, you Knock know, it give, it, give it everything I had. Uh-huh. And he, he was like, yeah, I mean, a, you know, a, a sort of. A, a definable like radio song um, he thought would would help and and uh, I wrote tons of songs trying to do that. <laughs> that seems like the kind of thing where if you the harder you try the, oh, the yeah. farther you're going to get. From oh, I it. could play you just garbage <laughs> that from that time. It just is so bad, but it was one of those things where the more I did it, the further away I feel like I got. And up all night had been an idea. Um, that Gregory and I had been kicking around for a while, and I I ended up finding a new space for that song when I kind of switched over to playing keys on it um, because it had been a, a very strummy Tom it's, Petty. It's very much like that, yeah. Um, but suddenly, when I kind of sat down at the piano and played this really insistent, uh, okay. uh, which ended up becoming the synth part on that record, okay, um, that that instantly felt. Yeah, just just a, a new a new angle for the song itself, and it ended up changing how I heard was hearing the verses. Okay, and I've and I was able to then sort of Did rewrite you, those verses. So you went back in and re-sang it too. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We had we probably had two or three different versions of that song by the oh, time we were done. Yeah. Um, and, and searching, did, did you feel like that song was the one that you were going to accomplish that radio thing with? I felt like <laughs> it had the best chance, Okay. Yeah. you know, I totally get that landing like, in that sp- space. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, when I, when I sent it, when we sent it to John for mixing, I think I said something like, I just, I just don't, can you make you know? Can you can you try to make it sound like something other than what it like obviously is? Okay. <laughs> you know? Can you help me just sort of steer it away from which and, was what and, to in me, your mind? Which to me was like a you know a sort of very like like you know Tom Petty esque you know sort of mid tempo Americana yeah. you know folk rock song and i and i and i feel like yeah we we were able to do that i just i don't i have no um desire to like try to hide what influences my music like totally i i'm i think i think the, you're really good at that like you you wear them on your sleeve but yeah. also like manage to incorporate them into what you do as an artist yeah, and it doesn't kind of sound the... it doesn't sound like a imitation or right. anything but you can hear them like i hear you know petty and i hear yeah. Elliot smith and i hear 
John Prine and totally. you know, all those things. Totally. And and so yeah, it wasn't about it wasn't about hiding that at all. But it was just about, you know, finding a space within you know the the context of of those luminary artists where i felt like i could i could live and and be authentic and and not not feel like i'm i'm cheapening what the greatness of what they've done yeah. by just doing a c minus <laughs> version of that you know yeah, yeah, yeah. um and and I, and when john sent the the mix of up all night back we gregory and i both knew immediately like the you know this is our best contender for radio song oh or, that's cool or whatever and how um, did the label respond was it what they were looking for yeah they okay. they they basically were like oh yeah this is ch- this has changed i we now understand the value of 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 this song as it exists on the record and then also as it exists like outside of the so it's it's really funny you know sometimes you know our perception of of what we're hearing um can be colored by the 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 sort of um you know the other touchstones that it makes us think of you know if if you hear a song for example you know and it makes you think of a of a specific artist or whatever um you know immediately and and that artist's you know doesn't happen to be particularly appealing to you right. you know you may not uh be you may be less enthralled you know with what's happening uh you know because you're it's just not something that you're super into whereas i think to me one of the exciting things that happens in music sometimes is when i'm hearing a song and i'm like normally i probably wouldn't like this but man bring it on this person or these people have really figured out a way to do this that's like captivating me and making me feel like i didn't know myself as well as i thought i did which is always exciting interesting you know yeah so tell me about the process for that record like how much are you playing guitars how much are you playing synth like what's your role in the in the actual session process for for that record Tastient. yeah there was a lot that was that was the first record I really got into sort of key like a lot of keys stuff on is that something you've got to like I don't know your history playing keyboards is that something you've done a lot of not in the really. past not at all you know okay. it sort of started around that record mm-hmm. I decided that that would was a voice that I thought I should try to develop yeah I had some skills you know but I but I had really only utilized them so far as whenever they were necessary if if we were in a studio somewhere and someone was like, well, B three would sound great on this, but it's you know one in the morning, <laughs> I would just be like, well, I can, yeah. I'll figure it out, you yeah. know, yeah, yeah. and go play something that worked. Um, so you know, during that time, I, I decided I wanted to start trying to develop that voice, and um, you know, it really happened. Uh, it was so funny because you know the way the the pandemic sort of fell into the middle of the process of putting that record out. I actually did have a lot of time all of a sudden to really uh-huh. develop that skill set. The first part of the learning curve of doing that was r- making the recording and sometimes having to, you know, I'm 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 very lucky in that I've been recording something usually um since I was about like 12 years old, you know, I bought a Tascam 
Yeah. Porta O2. Wicked. Um, Those are going to come back. Yeah. <laughs> when I was 12, you know, and, and just started, you know, kind of set up shop in my bedroom and kind of never stopped, you know. Um, so I got to the to point where if it's a guitar or a bass or even drums or like vocals or something like that, I can usually pretty quickly get my idea together and down. Um, but obviously uh, trying to learn a new instrument at the same time, or exp I guess sort of expand my skill set on an instrument at the same time. What sort of tools were you using? Like, what did you have at your disposal synth-wise that you hadn't, um, didn't have before? A, uh, a Prophet 9, okay. one of the new yeah. newer Prophet 9s, which are really cool because um, those keyboard, like one of the features of the newer ones is like the keyboards are also like have touch sensitivity now. So you can even do things like if you strike the key with a certain level of intensity, you can actually, it'll do, it'll basically do the same thing that like the tone wheel would do if you just waggled right. it a little yeah, bit yeah. or something. You oh, know, there's cool. like, there's all these little yeah kind of modern tricks to it um where you can do some pretty fun interesting sounding stuff so there was that there, <laughs> there i'm a i'm a as i mentioned i was mentioning earlier i i used to be the king of the 50 dollars guitar like but that's kind of just true of like m music stuff and i collect a lot of junk <laughs> mm -hmm. it's, good. But, it's a good feature one of the things that i got that was definitely not a uh, a piece of junk, but is definitely a, um, maybe somewhat of a collector's item. Uh, the fun machine. Oh, I used to have uh, yeah. the Baldwin fun machine. Exactly. Oh yeah. my God. Yeah. That was my favorite. I, when I moved from Vancouver, I foolishly got rid of my fun machine. <laughs> Did it light up like a Cadillac <laughs> yeah. on, oh, yeah. on the front? Oh All my God. Those are the stuff. greatest. Yeah. 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 And it's so. For something like songwriting. Yeah. You know, it's so. Built in drum machine. Yeah. And, Oh. Absolutely. In fact, there was a, um, I ended up even getting a, a, an app. There, I found there was like an app, like oh. an iPad app that you could get. Um, Is it called Fun Machine? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Be, yeah. Because it's, if you've, if, for those of you who don't know or haven't ever seen one, like it's not like the most mobile. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. you can't really just pack it up and, like, take it down to the gig, yeah. um, you know, without an extra set of hands around. It's bulky. Yeah. But not that heavy, actually. Right. You could right. take it to a gig. It's yeah. Just <laughs> it's just very awkward. You yeah. can't, like, one person can't really, yeah. you know, move it. Um, so you bought a fun machine? You, you found a fun machine somewhere? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and I had that going, um, and then as we were recording, just found the the app on the iPad and just started using that, and that and that was great because like it had like a like an on off switch on the app, which is just hilarious because you could on the app version you could like hold a key down and like turn the on switch on and, and it would literally goes, go. <laughs> <laughs> like that. So that, you know, became like its own instrument. Right. You know, uh, and and you hear a lot of that on Another Lonely Day. Okay. Um, you know, there's a lot of, of moments um, from that little iPad thing that ended up on the song. <laughs> That's a really cool thing about that song because that was, I'm guessing it was a guitar written song, mm -hmm. right? Like it's very finger picky. It's got like that's the central thing and then yeah. texturally there's all this other interesting stuff going on 
And that was kind of the idea of that one, I think, a little bit, um, was sort of the, you know, some of the sort of Jim O'Rourke kind of approach to folk, where you just sort of, yeah, create this bit, or I guess Wilco, you know, would be another example, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, but yeah, you sort of create this bit of, um, yeah, just kind of magical weirdness that you just play a folk song over top of, you know, and, and you just kind of let it run and... And and then, you know, you see those those moments where it it really enhances, you know, what's happening for and, sure. And you you feature it there and maybe you just mute it the rest of the time or yeah. something, you yeah. know, I mean, you might you might spend, you know, an hour or whatever, like generating this bed of noise that you end up using in the song for, you know, one chorus or something. But hey, it's worth it's it. It's worth it. Yeah. It totally is because yeah. there's nothing that I love more on a record as like a fan than just being like, what instrument even is that? Plus to me, it ties that a song like that in with a lot of the other more band oriented yeah. or heavier tunes. Totally. That's like, that might stick out in a weird way if it didn't have some of that stuff. It's going true. On. I think, you know, that's part of the like curating process of like making a record is sometimes um, having a song um, like that, that could, that could really be, be a, a, you know, a potential standout moment, but then you have to like, pay pay very close attention to like how you're putting it together to make sure that it's like a standout moment in a good way yeah. <laughs> not like a like what you were saying kind of yeah. like a sore thumb or right. something is somebody like one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes nice dress uh it's a it's a t-shirt until you tried it on same goes for your health care that's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Lyot Smith, an influence on your guitar playing and writing in that way too? Like he was a real accomplished finger picker even though he doesn't really like you wouldn't know it like he was a monster like classical player oh too, my goodness right? like, yeah yeah uh, but uh, but do his recordings inspire your writing process definitely i mean i i studied classical guitar when oh, i did? was a kid oh, yeah. yeah and like and how like how deeply um, I well, I I was in, when I was in the eighth grade, um, I was admitted to a high school um, called the Idlewild Arts Academy, which is in the San Jacinto Mountains of California. Okay, um, and they basically admitted me as an eighth grader to the high school because they didn't have any classical guitar majors on campus. And the the guy who was the classical guitar instructor there was this guy named Terry Graves, um, who had a master's degree in classical guitar from the University of Indiana, which is one of the finest music schools in in America. Um, so he was a real, uh, you know, incredible player. 
And I basically went there as like, you know, my guitar playing up until that point had been purely a vehicle for me to write songs. And, you know, and so I went into my audition for the Idlewild Arts Academy, like, here's these songs that I wrote, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and Terry um, was just kind of like, wow, man, you know, that's really amazing, you know, and, and just showed me a couple of things while we were sitting there, you know, oh, check this out. Can you do this? And can you do that? They were really like symbol, like, simple, more simple kind of like finger, you know, picking things. And, um, and I gravitated toward them pretty quickly. And how, and so, how accomplished were you previous to that on like, like, were you sight reading and like, not initially, because I, I really came to the guitar as a, as a, as a, um, as a lover of songs. So my goal Initially, was God, I'd love to be able to play America by Simon and Garfunkel, okay. yeah. you know, or something like that. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I had a, a, a guitar teacher early on in, in California who, you know, our, our, our approach to learning the guitar was based around songs, but he would explain to me. Oh, musically, that's cool. yeah. What was ha- what I what was happening? Like disguising theory in the, in the basically, context of, yeah, of, of like an Oasis song. Totally no, okay. because you know he would say, look, you know, so technically speaking, you know, the first chord of this song is E minor, but he, but the way that Noel Gallagher is voicing is it, he's 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 also fretting the B string and the high E string there at the at the at the third fret, you know, and so he's kind of doing these add nine chords, you know, and, and that's a different, that's not the same thing as just regular old E minor, you know? So he would kind of explain those sort of things. So I I had a, I had a, a a working idea of theory, you know, I knew the names of, of most of the chords that I was playing and, and all that, but I I had no interest in playing lead guitar. I have no interest in playing a guitar solo, like zero, you know, I just wanted to be a really great rhythm guitar player. Like the first thing that I tried to master like as a guitarist, was John Lennon's guitar part on um, "Close Your Eyes and I'll Kiss You." Mm-hmm. You know, you know, like yeah, yeah, the whole time. It's so good. Well, except for the the chorus part, you know, when it goes but you know, the verses, it's just all that. It's so wonderful and strange and like, and just gives this energy to the music. And I was like, that's where, that's where the energy comes from. Like in, in the context of a guitar and a band is the, actually the rhythm. It's not the solos, you know? So I want to be a part of that's what's giving the band a, energy. That's hard for a kid to come up with that, <laughs> that philosophy. I just, that's there, pretty cool, man. There were a lot of songs that I loved, you know. What were the other big, th- big ones for you that like really got you into playing in a band in the first place? <sighs> Ooh, um, you like, mentioned Oasis, like rhythm guitar wise, just like in general, or like, just in general. Okay, yeah, um, you know, it was it was a it was a really wide variety of stuff because I I started playing the guitar when I was eleven years old, and that was nineteen ninety five, and so the songs that uh, I was hearing that I was connecting with, 
you know, in that way. Initially, were were all songs that kind of featured like the acoustic guitar, real right. in in big in big ways. And it didn't matter to me if it was "Horse Had No Name" by America or "Runaway Train" by Soul Asylum. Mm-hmm. You know, it just it was just all know, cool any, shit. To anything you. that yeah. had that big strummy yeah. acoustic guitar. Fast, and were you good slow. at were you good at picking that stuff out by ear, or yeah. did you, you? Okay, I got very quickly to where if I was listening particularly like on headphones, like on my Walkman or something, I, I could be like, that's a G chord. Okay. I just know, I can hear how the strings are ringing out. Yep. And how quickly did that become writing songs to you? Immediately. I mean, I had a, my mom had a guitar, so I, I was able to borrow her guitar for a little bit um, before I bought my own. But just having that guitar available to me, I think before I'd even had a lesson or anything, I I was tr- I was trying to play it, but in the context of writing a song. Did you have any point of reference <laughs> or, at all, or was it just completely no, random? You were trying was... to put your finger down and yeah. see what happens. Yeah. That okay. <laughs> I was so naive yeah. um, uh, that I think it was it was to my benefit because. Um, like you didn't have a friend down the street or or an older brother that was like, here's an here's a G chord. I know, right? Yeah, it's it's. I mean, so God, so many you know legendary bands were started because of guys like that. Yeah. I feel like you know, but um, no, I never did. I was like the first song that I wrote. Um, which I have no idea how it went or what it was about or anything, but I had a friend my, when I was um, the reason I started playing um, guitar. My family moved to Southern California from Delaware when I was eleven, and my, a, f- a friend of mine uh, from school, you know, he was kind of getting bullied really badly in school, and uh, I I wrote a song for him and I recorded it. I had no idea what I was doing. That's why Mm -hmm. I said, I just have no clue what it was, what it was. Um, But I put it on like a Radio Shack cassette tape. Cool. Like sent it to him in the mail. Yeah. Um, You know, so it's interesting. Like there was always a very, from the very beginning, there was like a, uh, an an intention to sort of. There was a purpose to it. yeah, Yeah. And to try and write, Something, you know, the, the, I would say, you know, just to, to like fully answer your question that you just asked like a few minutes ago about like what really got you into, you know, wanting to play uh, music and, and songs and stuff, uh, you know, it was, that was like also the Beatles anthology uh-huh. was happening then. Yeah, right. And my mom was such a big fan, you know, and kind of reliving was her a big fandom. big deal too. Yeah. Like it, it really like. Huge. Yeah. You know, and, and Jeff Lynne. You know, who is also a, an influence on on the Tasgen record? He was the go-to he producer sure for that yeah. stuff. All the Wilbury stuff too, and all of that. He had a huge, huge kind of heavy hand in that. Yeah, and all that stuff too. Yeah, he almost. I mean, you know, uh, I think. Yeah, I think. I think George Martin is like the, definitely the fifth Beatle. But if there was a sixth Beatle. <laughs> <laughs> what about I, Billy I, Preston? I, yeah, He's, <laughs> Billy Preston. You cannot deny the the incredible contributions that yeah. Billy made to that music. But then um, Jeff Lynne. And that, yeah, so seventh <laughs> Beatle. Um, but yeah, um, you know, that was that was definitely a big part of, of my world at the time. And, and, and so, yeah, the songs thing just was born out of this desire to connect with people in a different way. Yep. I wasn't a great 
communicator as a kid. I was kind of I was kind of shy and I was worried a lot that um, I think I was savvy enough to know that I was not cool and that I was not going to become to cool know that at eventually. any time. <laughs> so, you know, I I I was I was a bit world weary maybe in the sense of of just not being sure of myself, yep. you know, from a very young age and That's why a and, lot of people get into it. Music just felt like such a such a natural um, way to communicate for me because it was a it was a defined setting, a, a period of time, and I, and I just had to be in that in the moment for that period of time. And once it was over, <laughs> you know, I was just back in my bedroom at yeah, home. And yeah. were you finding bands and stuff immediately as a young kid? Did you have friends that were playing and? And little scenes or bands that you that were getting into, or were you pretty much just sticking to your room and your four track? When I first started playing, there was uh, a couple of kids at school, uh, older kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, the school that I was at at that time was like a elementary school, middle school, and high school, like a full the full thing thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so there were. You know, you would run into the upperclassmen from time to time, and there were a couple of kids who had bands. Um, the 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 most influential one was a guy called John Bellaconta, um, and he he was just like you know the coolest guy in the world to me. And he ended up starting this band called Lola Ray. Um, that good Charlotte signed, oh, yeah. and and they were on MTV and and the whole thing, and 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 were kind of rock stars for a minute. Um, after after he was in college and this stuff. is still this is California, yeah, yeah, yeah Southern California. But I, I, you know, John was John was like the coolest guy. Like I remember, I remember, you know, he came to school one day and he was like, dude. Man, this have you heard this Radiohead album OK Computer? Like it is just mm. unbelievable, man. Like you got to listen to it. He turned you on you to know? some And I and I didn't even I didn't even understand it. I listened to it, you know, I was 12 and 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 I I don't yeah, it was beyond me. You know, I still was. I still was very. Yeah, you, you have know, to have some deep points of reference to to really like yeah. figure out how deep some of that kind of music can be. I was liking the earlier Beatles stuff, you know, at that time. Yeah. I mean, pop songs, really, you know, and obviously there are pop songs on that record, but you kind of, as you just said, you just, you need uh, to be a little bit more musically versed to fully understand yeah. Yeah. what's happening there. But I did, you know, I listened to that record for like three years, not knowing why. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then eventually, you know, was like, oh man, I get it now, yeah. you yeah. know, forever grateful to John for that one. But, you know, he was just that kind he was that kind of guy, um, but yeah, there weren't um, there weren't tons of of bands around. I mean, I knew I knew I had two classmates who played. One Max Mahaffa played the drums, and Corey Westrop um, also played guitar. So we were sort of like a sort of a band. Yeah, we yeah. were like a power trio with no bass player. <laughs> That's cool. Basically. Yeah, um, and uh, and we did one. We did one gig um, where we just played in Corey's driveway, but we went around his neighborhood, you know, and kind of invited the neighbors to come down and put a put a tip bucket out or something. Nice. And yeah. and we were I was such a dork 
that I took all the money we made and I gave it to the Parent Teacher Association of our school. Wow. <laughs> the one and only time that ever happened. But we got in the school paper for it, uh, you know? So That's called payola. Right, exactly, man. I was greasing palms when I was like, yeah, in the fifth grade, just trying to make it happen. So you've got like this string of, of interesting bands that happened when you moved to New York. Like you moved to Brooklyn. So was that a musical move or was that a family move? It was a musical move. When I was in high school, I That's had, a big move. That's a that's a terrifying thing to do. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean... Did you know anyone in... You were in Brooklyn, right? No, I didn't know a soul. I had done a um, jazz band competition when I was in high school that took place in New York. And I just became completely enthralled. You know, we were only there for four days or something like that, you know, but I just... We got, we got to do, like, our jazz... Our jazz band director, you know, he knew his way around New York. He had been a, a long time associate of of Wynton Marsalis and okay. and um, and knew a lot of of uh, you know folks from the Lincoln Center world. But you know, so he was like he was taking us to hear you know Nicholas Payton play at the Iridium. Well, you know, yeah, and heavy. and that's like a seventeen year old kid. I was just like looking at these guys like in these suits, man, and and just crushing yeah. musically. Yeah. Just like so inspiring. And then they were so nice to us afterwards, but also kind of like sort of setting a bar uh-huh. of, you know A high bar. Yeah, yeah. Like like, hey man, don't get up on that bandstand unless you like have like worked this shit out in advance yeah. <laughs> you know it's like, a big lesson yeah, yeah. you know you, you, you're not gonna fake your way through Laura's theme right. you know <laughs> like you need to know those chords you know yeah. you need to know those standards and 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 all that kind of stuff and so were you were you getting into jazz I was yeah you were? Okay. like 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 standards. I, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I played I played guitar in the Columbus Youth Jazz Orchestra. Okay. Um, and and so we were doing a lot of Ellington tunes. We were doing some bassy stuff, which was great for me because my... Were you playing like a lot of rhythm, like Grant Green kind of stuff? Or was it more like figuring out solos and melodies? My big hero was, was the uh, Count Basie orchestra guitar player, Freddie Green. Freddie Green, right. And, and he was... He didn't even use an amp. Just guy. an arch top. Yeah. Ripping. With just strings that were like, you know, it, like telephone wires, yeah. you know, yeah. giant string, you know. And, but you can hear him over the whole band. Right. It's, he sits in with the drums, mm-hmm. you know, and it, and it's that ka-chink, chink, chink, totally. ka-chink, 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 ka-chink thing. And it gives it that sort of that duple up kind of feel when it swings, yeah. you know. So that was my, that was my, inspiration and it's funny i was the only kid at that the 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 competition was at avery fisher hall at lincoln center and you know it was it was jazz bands from all over the country and i think there were 15 bands that competed you had to go through a process of of being you know selected to compete so i don't know how many applied 15 got chosen our band was one of them i was the only guitar player at the whole thing that didn't play a solo Okay, and I won the guitar player guitar player award. <laughs> well, you probably ripped on those chords, man. Because I think, yeah, there was. I think maybe there was some sort of they could tell I was really paying attention to what the role of my instrument in that music really was and trying as hard as I could to serve that, right? You know, and that was a valuable lesson for me too because it was like, 
you know, even though technically I won like an award, which is kind of hilarious, but it was sort but the, but the real message I took away from it is just like the reward is in serving the music, right? You don't try to shine. Yeah. You try to serve the music. And if you do that, then that's, that, that's rewarded with good music being made basically, totally. you yeah. know? Um, so I, I had, I had done all that and, um, you know, when I graduated from high school, I actually had a a, a, a scholarship um, for jazz guitar performance to the Berkeley College of Music no in Boston. Great school, um, but definitely a very, um, or at least at that time, you know, it was a very specific kind of player they were trying to totally. develop. Yeah. You know, I was really, you know, you mentioned Grant Green. He was, he was one of my absolute favorite mm -hmm. jazz guitar players. But Grant Green, Wes Montgomery, Joe Pass, sure. you know, the sort of golden... So you were in deep. You were, yeah. you were like kind of thinking of pursuing the jazz thing at that time? I was. Okay. You know, my, my friend Aaron Deal who, uh, you know, ended up playing in Winton's Septet. He was in the same band. He was the piano player in the band, uh -huh. um, in the jazz band. He he ended up playing in Winton's Septet when we were like 17 or 18 Ooh, years old. I heavy. mean, he was just off the charts. But yeah. he and I would get together, you know, uh, for us, you know, <laughs> a big Saturday night, you know, in high school was like, man, let's get the like Jamie Abersole <laughs> Giant Steps book and see if we can <laughs> figure out how to blow over giant steps, you know, like that was yeah, our, like, you know, partying or whatever, you right. know, that we did. Um, and so, yeah, we were serious about okay. it. You know, yeah. we, we, we wanted to sound good. Aaron was off the charts, like incredible. And that was what I sort of figured out. Like when I got to Berkeley was that I felt like a very competent jazz guitar player who, who could do that effectively but seeing seeing how some of the other kids were already developing a sound and an approach to it that felt completely like unique to me when I was right. hearing them. I was like ah I don't have that mm -hmm. when it comes to this yeah you know um so you did go to Berkeley I did. For, I went there for six months. Okay, and then you just split. <laughs> went and and I I was just so I was just thinking about New York the whole time I was there, and I almost went to New York thinking I just need to get this out of my system, because I'm not really being present at Berkeley in a way where I'm going to get the most out of this that I possibly can. So maybe what I should do is just go to New York for like a year and get rid of this, <laughs> you know, and then I'll go back and, and, and be able to be more focused and, okay. you know, kind of on the ball, yeah. you know, and, and figure out what I actually want to do here. Cause that was a, another part of it is like sort of suddenly not being so sure about the jazz thing. Of course that'll do it. You know, I kind yeah. of, I was, I was feeling That's kind of what lost, happened to me too. Right. And yeah. I didn't want to just like be, you know, particularly having like a scholarship, uh, you know, I was like, well, I don't just want to like go through these four years and then come out and just be like, well, I guess I have a degree, but like, <laughs> I, don't, I mean, whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, and then New York, it just clicked, uh -huh. you know, immediately. You got into bands pretty quickly. I found this. You had a whole string of bands there. Yeah. I found this guy, Justin Tranter. Um, through a Boston connection, uh -huh. Justin had gone to Berkeley and, you know, I, he had been doing a solo project and had been going really well in New York. He was selling out the knitting factory and stuff like that on yeah. his own in the big room. 
and um, he was looking for a a, a a a partner to start a rock band with. Yeah. You know, he wanted to do something a little different, and and so Semi Precious Weapons was born out of that. Mm-hmm. You know, and we, he and I, you know, took that. Furious. Were you singing in that band at all, or were you just playing guitar? Harmonies, yeah. Okay, yeah. I was, I was, I was trying really hard to be the, you know, the Keith of that, and um, so it was, it was interesting because it was my first time participating in the songwriting process as not a lyric writer. Uh, okay. You know, I was just really trying hard to design. Cool guitar you know, shit. Yeah. And yeah. I remember vividly like sitting around the house playing idea after idea after idea that I could come up with while Justin was doing something else, just hoping he would hear one and turn around <laughs> and be like, oh, what's that? Let's do something with that one. You yeah, know, yeah. it was it became like, you know, my my goal uh-huh. um, in life, you know, was to just come up with one of those a day. And so, yeah, we built a built a great thing with that. And and then I was I was in the office of our record company we got a record deal. I was in the office of our record company waiting to talk to the guy who had signed us about something. And I was outside of his office and I could hear him on the phone. I don't think he knew I was there. I could hear him on the phone talking to someone about our band. And I remember he <laughs> oh, referred no. to us as his gimmick band. And I was like, I don't oh really God. even know if I know exactly what that is. But like, I, I know it's I know I don't not want to be good <laughs> if the guy who signed you is calling you that. Oh, my you God. Know? That's terrible. Because I was like 23 at the time. Right. You know, I was super young and green. And this was the first time I'd ever, you know, really had a, um, you know, a, a, a true brush with the music industry, yep. you know, for real. Um. And so, yeah, I just that really got in my head and and I ended up um, kind of stepping away from that band, started a group called the Madison Square Gardeners. I love the name of that band. <laughs> Thank you. It's a great name. <laughs> yeah. Um, we had a really great run. as like sort of, you know, the, the, the local New York. And uh, you're still playing guitar strictly. Or, uh, with that, that, or one, with... I, that was I started to I started to sing like that band was cool because we had multiple lead singers for different songs. So, yeah. you know, but I was writing the bulk of the material we were doing. OK. Um, you know, and sometimes even trying to kind of wheelbarrows it a bit and being yeah. like, okay, I got this song and it's got four verses. So you do the first right. one and I'll, yeah. you know, blah, 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 you know, that kind of a thing. But yeah, the, you know, the focus was we were trying to be kind of like the some, somewhere between like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and like Johnny Thunder's Heartbreakers. <laughs> like, <Nice>. <laughs> a little more ramjackle. Yeah. You know, a little more kind of dangerous on stage and and you know, um taking taking some chances in that way. And speaking of Johnny Thunder's, you also had a gig with New York Dolls too. Right? I did. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. It 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 just so happened that when I stepped away from Semi Precious Weapons, um we had we had done some work with Tony Visconti in that band. When Tony had come to see our band to decide whether or not he wanted to work with us, he just happened to bring Sylvain Sylvain from the New York Dolls with him. And uh, and also Steve Conti, um, who was uh, playing the Johnny Thunders role in the band in at the reformed time. version yeah. at that time. And I just hit it off with both of those guys, you know, because we love guitars, right. you know. So it was just that thing. Um, and then Steve um, and his wife had been trying to have a, a baby for several years. And, and they finally 
got pregnant and we're, we're really excited about that. And Steve just wanted to be able to be home for that. You know, and so the the easy solution was sort of like, man, still already knows this guy mm-hmm. and he likes him, mm-hmm. you know, and and so, so you just got a call. Yeah. Hey, he, can you come and do this tour? He literally <laughs> called me up and he said, uh, man, I was thinking of you for something. And then I went to this like semi-precious weapons like page and like it seemed like you, you're not in that band anymore, mm-hmm. you know. And I was like, yeah, you know, I kind of stepped away and I've been doing this and da-da-da-da-da. And he was like, well, that's great news <laughs> actually for me because I need someone to cover these these gigs for me. And I remember him saying, please don't mention that you're doing this for a while <laughs> because there's a lot of people who are probably going to be mad at me for right. not calling them. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, a lot of Did people... Did you know all that stuff already? Um, I knew some of it. Okay. You know, yeah. not I, not all of it by any stretch, no. But, so you but had some I, homework to do. And, oh, yeah. yeah. It was it was 35 songs. Yeah, that's a lot. And, and one rehearsal... Where Whoa. we didn't even play through <laughs> really the entire song. And then they just threw you in to the yeah. fire. I mean, we would literally like we would literally sit there and, you know, David would call out songs or whatever and we would play verse and a chorus and David would just be like, Sounds good. <laughs> you know? <laughs> then we would kind of move on to the next one. Band leading one oh one. And 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 you know, if you know the dolls catalog, I mean they have they have these in some of these insane songs, like they have this song called Frankenstein, where like the song is like just goes on and on and on and on. And I don't know that anything ever repeats in that song. Right. Like not even one time. Oh my God. You know, and it's and it's also like three chord rock and roll. And it, it, you know, even though that's maybe sounds simple. There's nothing simple about that. Not, it's so crazy how like just a few chords like constantly rearranged like that can yep. just be the biggest mind oh yeah. trick, you know, you've ever had to like maintain. So did, did you prepare a lot for, okay. So I you did. showed up prepared. You, should, I you knew your shit. Yeah. I really wanted them. I, I, my goal was that David will be up there singing these songs and maybe look to the side of the stage and be like, oh, yeah. There's some it, new guy there. It's Aaron, you know. <laughs> right. Well, he called me son because he thought yeah. he was old enough to be my dad. <laughs> so he would always, son. Um, but That's um, crazy, man. What yeah. a crazy thing. Yeah. Oh, it was so fun. And yeah. such an honor. How long did that last for? Uh, just a couple months, you know. It I was did, basically like a tour, and then the and then yeah, you were. I did done. the I did this tour of South America, and I came back from that, and there was still some questions around when Steve was going to return. So I did a yeah. few things with them, you know. After that, but it's kind of yeah. great. It's kind of perfect. Oh, it was so great. They did ask me to join the band. They did. What, you know, when because eventually Steve did decide to depart. Um, to play with the great Michael Monroe of Hanoi Rocks, but uh, um, I, you know, I was I was <laughs> I was just sort of aware of sort of the overall temperature on like where I felt like it's interesting because if you if you know that band's history, basically the exact same thing happened to them twice. I don't know that. Like they came out, you know, when they originally came out. It was the thing in New York City. Yeah. I mean, a young John Cummings, you know, before he was Johnny Ramone, was getting glammed up with his high school buddies yeah. and driving from Queens into Manhattan to see the New York Dolls play the Mercer Arts Center. Yeah. And that was where he got his idea to 
you know, be a musician from, okay. you know, in a lot of ways. So, you know, it already had the special reverence there in the city, but then it it very quickly spread because it was such a, a, a just a, a captivating, like, experience seeing this band, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, and such a wide range of emotions you experience when watching them play, at least for me. Um, that I think it just really stuck with people mm-hmm. and and became hugely influential. And, and so, you know, the band basically made a couple of records and just got slowly smaller and smaller till they just kind of were like, eh, I'm going to go do this and I'm going to go do that. And yeah. we're not, I don't know, I, I, I'm not sure if there was ever a moment where it was like, you know, we're dissolving this officially, but... People that's just, what happened. Yeah. yeah, that's what happened. And so when they reunited, they basically reunited because one of their one of the people that they like really majorly influenced, the singer Morrissey, mm-hmm. asked the band to get back together. This is like early two thousands yep. or something. Okay, and they went over to England to play, you know, a show uh, for Morrissey. And and it was like, oh well, I guess we'll just this went really good. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll, we'll keep going. And I, I'm trying to remember who the original drummer of the Dolls was, but he on um, when they when they went to England, I think it was for the first time or whatever, he died. Oh wow! And when the Dolls got back together to play with Morrissey, the bass player uh, Arthur Killer Kane had been working as a librarian. Yeah, um, and it was his dream. To get the band back together. So it finally happens. And it happens in this really cool, amazing way where Morrissey calls them over to England and they all go over there, play the gig. Arthur Kane dies like oh, the next my day. God. Oh my God. <laughs> so, that is once, so it, crazy. Isn't that insane? And so, you know, so even like some of those things were like parallels both times yeah. that the band did its thing. And yeah, so I was just kind of, I think I was just sort of aware of the fact that, yeah, it probably wasn't going to be, I think the tour that they were doing when I got asked to join the band was a first of three, like shed tour. It was the New York Dolls, Motley Crue and Poison. Oh my God. And I just thought... <laughs> That doesn't bode well. It's like well. a crime that the New York Dolls are like opening for Poison and oh Motley Crue. Like Poison and Motley Crue wouldn't exist without the New York, you know? Like, oh, man. Yeah. Uh, the writing was on the wall. Yeah. yeah. It was just kind of, I just didn't see that, yeah. you know, I didn't see Fair me enough. having a place in that, yeah. you know? Um, and so, but you know, what was great it was when I stepped away from the, from doing the Dolls, I still... And I remained close. Mm-hmm. And so when Syl was doing his various Sylvain Sylvain projects, yeah. I participated in, so cool, in those with him, which was really great. Amazing. You know, so I got to have that yeah. extended time with him. Amazing. But yeah, and and you know, and there were there were others, you know, Mark Cohn, um, you know, of Walking in Memphis mm-hmm. fame. I worked with him and his band, uh, uh, Chris Barron the, of the Spin Doctors. Oh yeah, uh, worked with him in a in a band called the Time Bandits. That was really cool. That 
was at times like this crazy all-star lineup where it would, uh, I remember one night we played in New York and it was, um, me and Chris on guitar and Joe Russo on drums and John Popper from Blues Blues Traveler Traveler. playing harmonica and Mike Gordon from Fish was the bass player, you know? So there, you know, sometimes that gig would get really fun like that. And we were, you know, just jamming and, and getting to play. And Chris, what I loved about Chris was he was, he never shied away from being a hit songwriter. Right. So we would play those songs, you know, and people would just go crazy, man. It was so yeah. fun, well, you know. Um, but um, yeah, so there was a you know there was a bunch of stuff like that, and I I just kind of kept my head down through all of it. I wasn't sure, uh, you know, wh- where I was quite going at that time, but I was still writing a lot of songs. You know, is that what brought on the the kind of the last thing I wanted to ask you about was the move to Nashville? Like, I, yeah, it's uh, you know that's another big move, especially if you don't really know people in a in a certain area. But was there what was it about this town that drew you here? Was it the songwriting stuff and the history here, or was it something else? It was the songwriting, for sure. You know, I, you know, New York was such a great place to be at that time because when I first got there, it was 2004. The Strokes had just happened. Yep. Nora Jones had just happened. Right. You know, all all out of New York, you know. Um, and so, I mean, talk about like opposite ends of the spectrum too, yeah. like Nora Jones and the Strokes. I mean, that's like, and there's so much music in, in between those two places and, you know, and MGMT was, was firing off, but so was the Hold Steady and, and Craig Finn was living in Brooklyn at the time. It was really cool, but I was, you know, very you know, influenced as a songwriter by by folks like who you mentioned earlier, certainly Prine, Elliot Smith, Petty, Jeff Lynn, certainly Bowie. And it was kind of funny just the way the music business was at that time. I remember one time a music business guy came to see me play in New York and he's <laughs> his comment after the show, he goes, he goes, you know, what you're doing is so it's so uncool that it almost has gone the whole way right back, back to being cool. Around to being cool again, <laughs> you know. Um, that was sort of like his assessment, Thanks, of it, you know. <laughs> and uh, you know, yeah, I just there was something about Nashville. Did you have a musical connection here personally, or Todd Snyder? Oh, Todd Snyder. Okay, yeah. So you'd met him on tour, touring, or something. Okay. And he he kept, has a bit of a magnet, that guy. Oh. <laughs> and ju- and I mean, yeah. And talk about songwriting. Yeah. I mean, Jesus, you know, um, one of the one of the best. Man, I saw him at the Ryman. I don't know, six eight months ago. Yeah, I've never seen anyone captivate an audience solo like that. It's, like I've seen a lot of solo shows. Yeah, but he did something that I've never seen before. It is like. It's it's like having an audience with Mark Twain or something. Kind of, you know. Yeah. It's this. It's like poetry in human form, basically. Yeah. You know, it's abstract, but you understand it. The way his brain works to me is almost like a like a stand up comedian mm-hmm. or something. Like that's how it came across to me too. Yeah, he, the element of surprise yeah. is so central to to what he does, whether he's telling a story or singing a song. And I don't know if he does if he varies it wildly from night to night. He maybe he does. Maybe someone like Steve Poltz, he's like doing it from scratch every night. Yeah, I don't know if 
Todd is like that or not, but it sure comes across like he's just doing it for you that night. What I'll notice about Todd is he will, even if he's telling a story that I've heard before, uh, it's not a rehearsed story. Right. Yeah, he's sort of is is telling you what he remembers about it mm-hmm. as as he's remembering it mm-hmm. on stage. Yeah. you know, and so I think that's a really smart way to do it because it does end up feeling very in the moment, even if it's something yeah. that you've you've even heard before. Totally, like it's it's still it, it is always worth paying attention to because you might hear something that you didn't expect to, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and he just, for probably like two years or so, you know, every time I would run into him, he would just be like, oh man, I just really think, you, you know? And I here. remember one yeah. time, I think I might've even said to him like, I mean, I'm not really country though, you know? And he would be like, no, man, I'm talking about East Nashville. <laughs> That's different, you know? Like you gotta, you gotta come see it, you know? And you was, gotta... was Brian somebody that you'd met on your, in your travels too, or did you not have a thing with him? I never got to meet John. Oh, okay. But what I got to have the experience of was a few different people telling me that, that John was a fan of mine. Okay. And the 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 coolest, you know, most awesome one that I still think about all the time was that um I was on this music cruise called Kayamo mm-hmm. and um they had a John Prine tribute on the boat. Fats and Dave Jakes and all those guys. Yeah. Yep. And John also happened to be on the boat mm-hmm. <laughs> at the time. Which I kind of, I kind of was like thinking to myself, like I was like, I wonder how John feels about this. Like, there's nowhere to go. Still here, guys. You know, Still it's here. like, yeah. yeah, he can't. You know, well, he's gonna yeah. helicopter or something. But they, I got asked to participate to be one of the artists that participated in it. And oh, I so had, you did a song of his. I had my band with me yeah. um, at the time, and and I I used to do this sort of very revved up, you know, kind of Heartbreakers esque version of Lake Marie. Oh, cool where we would get super dynamic in terms of the chorus and then coming down for the talking verses and stuff. But me and my guitar player were both playing electric guitars and we had this little riff worked out that we would play on the chorus, you know, to kind of add a little something there. That was our kind of our own take on it. And so we did that. Um, And, you know, I thought we did a pretty good version of it that night or whatever. But yeah, a lot of times these things, you know, yeah, you just kind of do them and you move on or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, but I was I was uh, somewhere in the ship the next day, and I got a tap on my shoulder, and I turned it around, turned around, and it was John's guitar player, Jason Wilbur. Mm-hmm. And Jason said, uh, "Hey, man, John's been looking for you today, but he told me um, what he wanted to tell you. So if he doesn't find you, I just wanted to let you know, like, you were his favorite last night." Whoa, that's and so cool. He he was really hoping if there's time that maybe you could show him that riff you were doing. <laughs> he wants to play it that way. Whoa! Which I just <laughs> you know so cool. Man. I mean, yeah. It, you know, my I remember thinking uh, one time I was watching a, a documentary about Jeff Tweedy or uh, I'm sorry Jeff Buckley yeah. making the album Grace. Yeah. And he said something in it like. My goal in music is just to try to give back to music what music has given me. And I really identified with that. And I, I felt like in some small way, I kind of got to do that in that moment. Like I got to repay 
John Prine. Amazing. You know, by doing a version of his song that he liked, you know, after he had just meant the world to me for as long as I can remember. Amazing. (laughs) Hearing his music, which I heard first when I was like 13. So long time. That's what, you know what I do like about Nashville? I don't know if you, if you feel this way, but coming from New York, it was sometimes a challenge like to, you see these people all over the place. You know, I walked across the street next to Lou Reed one time, but I didn't dare say a word, you know? I watched somebody else say something to him after we got across the street. You made the right like, call. Yeah, that. man, I nailed this one. Like, <laughs> I'm smarter than that idiot. You know, uh, I shouldn't say that. They're not an idiot. You know, it was kind of a hard. It was hard to like get to know those people a lot in New York. Like, you kind of had to have several sort of experiences with them in some sort of social setting before they would kind of let the wall down a little bit yeah. and like accept you. And and I did get to meet some musicians there that I really admired, like Charlie Drayton and Andy Hess and Tony Shear and um, Jim Campolongo, certainly, and Catherine Popper and 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 all these Jesse Mallon and all these great all these great folks. But yeah, it was hard to it was hard to get to know them sometimes because, you know, there's that there is that New York kind of gruffness too but it's like here kind of doesn't happen in the same way it really doesn't people are just i don't know if it's like a southern thing or something they're just like more open somehow or like they don't they're not like oddly freed who's like to me one of the greatest rock living rock guitar players one of the nicest guys on the planet he couldn't be nicer i know right Uh, like and and he's so real too like i remember one time like uh we were doing this neil young tribute thing together and I was like looking at his pedal board and I was like hey man like I've never seen that pedal like what does it do or whatever and <laughs> oddly said man I can't even tell when it's on <laughs> <laughs> I love that he keeps it on his pedal board though I know right I was just thinking that I was like and yet there it is you know just in case <laughs> uh, well hey man I've taken up lots of your time here Thanks. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Steve. Yeah, I love your music. Looking forward to hearing what you're coming up with. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening, everybody. Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast is produced at the Hen House Studio in East Nashville, Tennessee. Please remember to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. You can find more info on this episode, including show notes and an audio playlist for Spotify and Apple Music at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Thank you again to our sponsors this season, Union Tube and Transistor, Spectra 1964, The Deering Banjo Company, Mule Resonator Guitars, and The Hen House Hang. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Over and out.